Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, Mary, full full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this 4th of July episode, Bishop talks about what life was like for Catholics in colonial America, as well as the life of St. Thomas the Apostle, whose feast day we just celebrated. The show wraps up with listener-submitted questions. If you have a question, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman with our Bishop. Happy 4th of July, Bishop. Thank you, Kyle. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to you and all our listeners. Do you have a regular 4th of July routine, or is it different from year to year? It, it's different from year to year. Back home, it was the um, one of my uncle's birthdays, and uh, so we would gather in Maryland, where he lived, with the family, all the cousins, everybody, and we'd always have a big crab feast on oh, the 4th of July. Nice. Maryland crabs. And uh, <laughs> so that was part of our family tradition, and... Uh, it was also the day that my my grandmother died, so it's kind mm-hmm. of a mixed day, a joy and a birthday of my uncle, but also a day I always remember my grandmother who lived with us. So, yeah, Fourth of July is is uh, special. Well, I know in the past you've talked about how much you love history and reading history books and biographies and stuff. What is it that interests you most, maybe specifically about American history? Is there a, wow. a person or a specific time period? And why do you think you have this interest in history? I don't know. I've always been fascinated. I love all American history, world history too. But but I've kind of focused most of my, I'd say the majority of the reading that I've done has been around Revolutionary War times. Hmm. Uh, very interested in the, the origins of the United States and our founding fathers, their ideas, what life was like back then, the situation of the church at that time. I love biographies, so I've read biographies on some of our founding fathers, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin. I just get so absorbed in it. I enjoy it. But I also, on the church side, I love to read about the early missionaries. Um, 
not just in the original 13 colonies, that's something that might be good for us to talk about on the 4th of July. We could maybe talk a little bit about what it was like for Catholics in 1776. Yeah. Sure. But I also have an interest in you know the beginnings of the Catholic Church in the United States. So the Spanish missionaries in Florida and California and Arizona. And, I mean, that was way before the 13 colonies. Mm -hmm. And also the... Um, the French missionaries, which would be more in, in this area of Indiana and the Midwest. But anyhow, on the 4th of July, you know, it's good to remember our America's founding fathers. But one thing I notice, how many people, I bet very few, even of our listeners, know about the Catholic founding fathers. Yeah. Um, maybe I could give you a little quiz. Okay. <laughs> Are you open to that, Kyle? I, I, I am... Not uh, beyond humiliating myself. So. <laughs> okay, I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, but let me just ask you a yes and no question. Okay. This was the day we remember the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Were any of the signers, and there were 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, yeah. were any of those 56 men Catholic? I feel like I've heard, was there one that was Catholic? Very good. Okay. Yes, we should do Jeopardy on this show, shouldn't we? <laughs> what yes, because yes. you asked it as a question. Was there one? That's how you <laughs> yeah, answer Jeopardy <laughs> questions. Yes, Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Okay. He was the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of Independence. I'd like to talk a little bit, if you think it would be interesting for the listeners, about Charles Carroll, but also because that was the most prominent Catholic family at that time in the newly independent United States, the, hmm. the 13 colonies. Do you think that would be interesting? I'm already intrigued, yes. Okay, well the Carrolls were from Maryland. And uh, by the way, it's, it's interesting that um, Maryland was the only place that there was religious freedom for Catholics hmm. in really in, in the 13 colonies. It was established by an English Catholic called Lord Baltimore, and um, <laughs> that was back in 1634. But really, that toleration didn't last. That's why we had a number of Catholics, who, by the way, who immigrated to the colonies because there was religious freedom, okay. at least in Maryland. Uh -huh. And it really, we could call it the birth Maryland, the birthplace of religious freedom <laughs> in what would become the United States. But it didn't last real long, only a couple decades, because what happened was when Protestants moved in and took control politically of the state of, not state, the colony of Maryland, that toleration was done away with. So then Catholics became persecuted, like in all the other colonies. I think a lot of us, when we study American history, we don't even realize how anti-Catholic it was in yeah. those original 13 colonies. Catholics couldn't hold political office. Some places they were even forbidden to even live there. Huh. No voting, all those things. And even some of that continued after the Declaration of Independence in those first decades until religious freedom really caught on, thanks to people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, etc. But anyhow, I don't want to get into too much detail, but back to, to the Carroll family. Charles Carroll of Carrollton was actually not only a signer of Declaration of Independence, he's the one who lived the longest. So the 55 other signers died, and he was the last remaining 
I think he was seven, 95 years old, so he's hmm. kind of a celebrity, but he's a forgotten patriot. Sure. I mean, who talks about Charles Carroll right. of Carrollton? But on the 4th of July, it's good to remember him. His cousin, John Carroll, was the first Catholic bishop of the United States. John Carroll, Bishop John Carroll, in 1789, when the Diocese of Baltimore was established, the first diocese in our country, hmm. which in, at that time included all 13 original states, he was um, a great man. So that was Charles Carroll's cousin. Also, Bishop John Carroll had a brother named Daniel. Daniel Carroll was a signer of the U.S. Constitution. Huh. Uh, and he served in the first Congress. He was a member of the House of Representatives from Maryland. Wow. Um, and by the way, Charles Carroll, who signed the Declaration of Independence, he served as one of Maryland's first two U.S. senators. Okay. So it's interesting, their influence, because obviously they were practicing Catholics, they believed in the faith, but when you think about it, they weren't even allowed to vote after you know the penal laws came to Maryland, but they ended up serving in the U.S. Congress. Catholics, for example, were, this is before the Declaration of Independence, in most of the colonies, they could be imprisoned, they couldn't vote. In some places, they were double taxed. There was just so much anti-Catholicism. And that's kind of not, you know, I don't know why that's not more prominent in American history. I think part of it is kind of covering over the, or idealizing sure. uh, those early years. Things got better, though, after the U.S. was founded, after uh -huh. the Declaration of Independence. But it's still, anti-Catholic laws continued in some of the states for, for many years. But the principles of religious freedom were certainly enunciated by people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, George Washington as well, John Carroll. Catholics were very involved in... Uh, now, we were a small number, by the way. Mm. In the Revolutionary War, they were patriots, um, but they were a small number. I mean, why would Catholics come over, you know, when you think about it from Europe, except in Maryland during that brief period, where they would have been still oppressed? Mm -hmm. uh, some did come for uh, economic reasons, to escape poverty, but I don't know that a lot came for religious freedom until later. Was it a particular denomination that was trying to, take over or being oppressive or was it just kind of a, a protestantism in general different denominations if you look at the uh, probably the worst would be the puritans up in massachusetts okay. very very anti-catholic you can think about and we idealize them at thanksgiving you know um, <laughs> the uh, the church of england the anglicans um it depended on which colony you know some colonies okay. had official official religions so oh, okay. um, I think in New Jersey was more Calvinist, but they were all anti-Catholic to one degree or another. Pennsylvania wasn't too bad because of the Quakers. William Penn was very tolerant. But you see, sometimes, though, he would be followed in power by someone else who wasn't as tolerant. Sure. So you'd have, we'd have to spend time, Kyle, looking at each colony yeah. and its history. But I would say the main groups would be as you mentioned, the Church of England, Anglicans, the Puritans, the Reformed, or the Calvinists. In, in New York, it was the Dutch Reformed, for example. But they all had anti-Catholic, to one degree or another, sentiments. But back to the um, Charles Carroll, 
they were very wealthy. I mean, they owned a lot of land and, and in Maryland, etc. And of course, they obtained all that when Catholics were had freedom. Mm. Uh, Charles Carroll, he was really the architect of the Maryland Senate in the Constitution for the state of Maryland, which was really the model for the U.S. Senate that James Madison then used when he drafted the Constitution. So, the U.S. Constitution. So, I mean, he had quite a bit of influence. He also was a, a big advocate for the nation's capital being in Washington, D.C. He was a slaveholder. That's really certainly a stain on his legacy. Mm-hmm. As, well, Washington was a slaveholder. Jefferson was a slaveholder. Really tragic. The Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. But then you had this hypocrisy because many of them owned slaves, including Charles Carroll. Hmm. But later, as a senator in Maryland, he spoke out against slavery and urged the state to abolish slavery gradually. And he himself slowly freed many of his slaves. But there is that stain that we have to recognize. Mm-hmm. We have to recognize. There was this prevailing opinion at the time to accept the institution of slavery. So when we look at the Catholic Church in colonial America, I was saying it was a small presence. I think around, I think the first real numbers was a report from Bishop John Carroll, which I think said there were about 25,000 Catholics, which means that's like in 1780. 25, 30,000 Catholics in all 13 colonies together, that's only 1% of the population. Mm. So it was quite small in those 13 original colonies. So there wasn't much toleration, much tolerance of Catholics, except in Maryland during the time when Catholics were governing. As I said, under William Penn, there was, there was more tolerance in Pennsylvania. But in most of the other places, there was a lot of Protestant prejudice against Catholicism. And not only that, it was seen in all the penal restrictions that were very similar to the restrictions on Catholics that were in place in England. So anyhow, on the 4th of July, um, we still celebrate. This was the beginning, I'd say, of, a, of not only our independence from England, but also the beginning of a what became strong traditions in our country, including religious freedom. Mm. Although we do see the ugly head of prejudice against Catholics rising up a lot during periods of big Catholic immigration to the United States in the mm-hmm. 19th century, early 20th century. We see things like the Ku Klux Klan and others who were very anti-Catholic. We saw anti-Catholicism in the campaign of John Kennedy hmm. to to be president, and uh, and we see anti-Catholic prejudice in our country today, although it's more of a disguise kind of thing. But really, there was a universal anti-Catholic bias from the very beginning when the English colonists came to Jamestown, and in the thirteen colonies, we see this. We actually have, for people that aren't aware, there's a museum in the Archbishop Knoll Center, down in the basement, so below the Cathedral Bookstore, you go down the steps and there's a museum down there. One of the things that's in there is a display of anti-Catholic propaganda, which I think, I guess the first question is, why would this be something that we hold on to in a museum and display? Because it's real and true, and I think 
when we study history, we have to be concerned for historical truth. Mm. And one of the things is to prevent that kind of thing from happening again. As I said, there still is this animus against Catholics among certain people. Did you see that one cartoon, Kyle, that was um, in Harper's Weekly back in 1875? It shows... Catholic bishops attacking public schools. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of things like that. Uh, I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. People I know who come to the museum, they looked at it and said, they really had that, you know? But that was true, yeah. Yeah, so what was going on at the time that there's this, you, know, you mentioned this political cartoon, uh, and there's all kinds of different symbolism in there. It's actually very detailed as far as today's political cartoons might just have, you know, one really obvious kind of statement, but there's a lot of little things going on here with Bibles and Vatican flags and political things and alligators with bishops, miters on them and things like that. What was going on at the time? Well, I think, you know, it was time of, of where there was heavy Catholic immigration. So there was this nativism, this anti-immigrant thing, especially against Catholic immigrants from Ireland and which was very large at that time. Later, we saw it with, with the Italian immigration and all. Basically, they saw Catholics as a threat. They felt that um, they had this idea that they'd be more loyal to the Pope and, and that they wanted to take over the mm -hmm. country. And uh, so there was a lot of this irrational stuff. They very much opposed Catholic schools. Mm. Um, and that was a big item issue at that time. That's when a lot of Blaine amendments were enacted in various state legislators, legislatures, although failed on the national level, which wanted no aid to go to, not only no aid to, uh, to Catholic schools, but also didn't even want Catholic schools to exist. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot going on. But uh, as I said, a lot of this goes back to earlier years from the, the time of the colonies. There was even a political party called the Know Nothing Party that was really a nativist party where they uh, were totally anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. Hmm. Anything else that you want to talk about around uh, religious history, uh, history of the United States and freedom? And Well, there is so much. Maybe on future programs, it's, sure. I, think it, I think it's good for us to understand how the Catholic Church grew in the United States to, to learn more about some of the missionaries, mm -hmm. uh, what was the role of the Catholics at the time of the American Revolution. You know, today, July 4th, for example, how many Catholics know that the father of the American Navy was Catholic, Commodore John Barry? Huh. There were many Catholics who were enlisted in the Continental Army and Navy. We even had a regiment of Catholic Indians who came down from Maine to fight in the American Revolution. We have Catholic generals who came over from Europe to help, especially France to, and Poland, to help the war for independence. And George Washington was very grateful for this. You'll see different statements where he talked about the aid given by Catholics in the American Revolution and their loyalty to, to their country, even though, think about it, they were themselves persecuted. But they did see that things would get better mm -hmm. under US governance with independence from Great Britain. Sure. So 
even though Catholics were only about 1% of the population of the colonies at that time, they made great contributions in the Revolutionary War. It's interesting to see, too, and I think part of this is not to restrict our thinking about Catholics in the United States to the 13 colonies, because way before that, we had Catholics establishing in other parts of what would become the United States. As I mentioned, in the Midwest with the French missionaries, in the South and the West with Spanish missionaries. But I think on a day like today, July 4th, we probably focus more on the uh, the original 13 colonies. And uh, I think we can also, it's important to understand how we were at the forefront of religious toleration and freedom when the Catholics established themselves in Maryland. And we can learn a lot uh, and should be proud of that, actually. That would be something maybe for us to talk about sometime, the early establishments of, of the Catholics in Maryland. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the when the Ark and the Dove came, those boats, and Father George White, etc. All right. Coming up, we'll chat more with Bishop, and we'll have questions submitted by you. Coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes on this July 4th episode. We've been talking about church history and the history of the church in the United States. And maybe it's worth mentioning the diocesan heritage pilgrimage that's happening. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that, Kyle. I'm really looking forward to it, July 20th to 22nd. I hope more people will sign up. I think we have about 50 people going now. But this is really going to be neat. We're going to go down to Bardstown, Kentucky, and everyone say, well, why does that, what does that have to do with our diocese? Well, in our last segment, we talked about the establishment of the Diocese of Baltimore and our first bishop, John Carroll. But the Diocese of Baltimore in 1808 was divided into four dioceses, and um, one of those was Bardstown. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're going to Bardstown. We would have been part of, well, the Baltimore Diocese, but then when Bardstown was was made a diocese in 1808, we became part of that, and Bishop Flaget was the, was the first bishop. So I, I think it'll be great to go down there and learn about what life was like at that time. And then we'll move on to other historic sites, St. Meinrad's and the Cathedral in Vincennes. That was the first diocese in Indiana. And then we'll visit Terre Haute and our first Indiana saint, first and only Indiana saint, Mother Theodore Guerin. Uh-huh. So it'll be, um, I think, uh, a wonderful educational experience, but also spiritual experience for the participants. So if you haven't signed up yet, if some listeners are interested, please do so. You can go on the diocesan website and find information. Mm-hmm. Diocesefwsb.org. And if you scroll down a little bit, there's a diocesan heritage pilgrimage little uh, picture, and you can click there for more information and check that out. Uh, great opportunity. Uh, another thing that we just celebrated yesterday was the Feast of St. Thomas the Apostle, also known to some as Doubting Thomas. And so the gospel tells the story of Thomas, who wasn't there when everybody else saw Jesus, and he's doubting this, which I think we give him a hard time for this and say, oh, here's a guy that doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But I would imagine most people that didn't see that would be pretty skeptical. Like, we all know that he was crucified, but why are you saying that he's walking around now? 
Right. I, I have very I have a lot of sympathy for yeah. Thomas, you know. It makes us realize sometimes when we have doubts that we're not alone. But I think that um, you know, he wanted the proof. He he wanted to to see in his hands the prints of the nails and place his finger in the marks and his hand in his side and uh so he yeah, he's called the doubting Thomas. But you know what I love is after he did that, we see how human he was by his doubting. But but just think of that great profession of faith he made. I think it's the greatest profession in the whole New Testament when he said, my Lord and my God. Hmm. I mean, what a beautiful profession of faith. You know, and we always think of that passage when we think of St. Thomas. But, you know, I want to mention another passage in, in John's Gospel where Thomas is mentioned, because I think we forget about it, but I always like it. Remember when Jesus uh, went to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead? Okay. And Bethany was very close to Jerusalem, so it was kind of dangerous to go in that area. Hmm. And um, when Jesus decided that he was going to go to Bethany, what did Thomas say in John chapter 11, verse 16? He said to the other disciples, let us also go, hmm. that we may die with him. Wow. And he was determined to follow his master. And I think that's exemplary. Hmm. He, you know, it's a great lesson for us, his, his readiness to stand by Jesus to the point of willing to be, share in, in, in death. So even though we think of doubting Thomas after the resurrection, let's remember back in John chapter 11, let's remember that that was pretty amazing. So, yeah. And that line that you said, the, my Lord and my God, I, back when we were talking about the mass, were you saying that that was one of the phrases that a priest would say at a more of a whisper? No, I, I, lady, or? too. I mean, I, I always said that since oh, okay. since I was seven years old. I was taught to say that silently at the moment that the priest elevated the host to say at the prayer, my Lord and my God. Huh. That was, I don't know if that was just something old when I was growing up. You didn't have that when you were studying first communion or anything. I don't remember kind of, it. No. But I think it's something we should teach. I think it's a beautiful okay. thing for us to pray. And we pray it silently yeah. when the priest elevates the host because it's a profession of faith that Jesus is really present. Yeah. I like it. I, and I guess the, the follow-up then response from Jesus, I always find a little bit of inspiration in that, that have you come to believe because you have seen me, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, which... Yeah, the apostles that were there have this extra benefit that we don't necessarily have today of, of Jesus walking around and being in person. We have the Eucharist, which is a, a little bit more disguised presence of Jesus. And so uh, maybe we get a little extra bonus points for believing. Without saying. Yeah. And, you know, Thomas Aquinas said that. I mean, St. Thomas said that those who believe without seeing are more meritorious than those who seeing believe. Huh. So... I think it does give us hope. And I think it's also the idea of a more mature faith that's not dependent on these signs. And um, I think Thomas also encourages us to persevere despite the difficulties sometimes in, in our faith in Christ. Do we know much more about what happened to St. Thomas after this event? Well, you know, there's some traditions. There's a couple apocryphal works. Okay. Um, 
I guess you could say they're kind of like historical fiction. They tell a lot of stories that we don't, that's more legendary, but, but there might be a historical kernel in them. Mm. There's what's called the Acts of Thomas and the Gospel of Thomas. Uh-huh. So there might be some historical thing there, but we also have an ancient tradition, especially with what are called the St. Thomas Christians in India, which is apart from these apocryphal works, we have evidence of this devotion to St. Thomas in India, of his presence there as a missionary apostle. But it is also mentioned in these apocryphal works. So I think there is some historicity there. There is this ancient tradition. The, the tradition is that he, he was first, an, he was an evangelizer in Syria and Persia. We see that mentioned in some of the early fathers of the church. But then that he went to Western India. Okay. And from Western India down to Southern India. Hmm. So that is a pretty strong tradition. And I think it has some historical basis because we have these St. Thomas Christians in, in India. And we believe he died there as a martyr. Okay. All right. Well, and I guess uh, uh, also a happy feast day belated to St. Thomas the Apostle Parish in Elkhart. And uh, Father Jason. I'm sure we have many. Yeah, Father Jason Freiberger and all the wonderful parishioners there. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure we have many uh, men named Thomas as well yes. in the diocese. <laughs> yes. All right. And Father Levi, one of our African priests, is is now serving, has been serving at St. Thomas Parish with Father Jason Freiberger. Oh, good. Uh, so, and they have a great school there also. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, Bishop will answer questions about noisy children at Mass, the order of the books of the Bible, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you have posed for Bishop to answer. Jerry Zent from St. Charles in Fort Wayne said, First, the problem. I was taught by my father when I was young to be considerate of others. It does seem like something Jesus would want us to do. I wear hearing aids, and they are necessary for me to hear. The trouble with them is that they also increase background noise. When at Mass, it's often hard for me to pay attention to the celebrant because of all the babies and toddlers crying, screaming, or just plain carrying on. My wife and I used the cry room for about four years straight when our kids were little. No one seems to use it anymore. It's often empty and dark inside. I've used it before since it's often empty. You might as well call it the hearing impaired room. Question. Would the bishop consider giving pastors in the diocese a directive to remind those with little ones to use the cry rooms? Over the years, I've heard pastors give gentle reminders that we should all give our fair share and that we should dress appropriately for Mass. It would really help me and others to be fully engaged at Mass if we could be freed of all the noise and distractions of little ones. I love children, but it's hard to hear the priest with so much commotion. Thank you. That's a really good question. You know, I appreciate that, Jerry. It's kind of hard for me to give a directive because of the fact that different churches have different setups. And Jerry's from St. Charles. They now have that that large uh, gathering space. Mm-hmm. You don't even need a cry room. If I, I, I think the uh, sound system goes into that area. So it would be mm-hmm. pretty easy if there's a child that's screaming or crying and, and uh, makes it difficult for people 
to go back to that area. But then it's more challenging because we have a lot of churches, especially older churches, that have no cry room. Sure. So to give a Dasson directive, it's not appropriate. But I think it's up to each pastor to try to – and yet it's so sensitive. I mean, you don't want to do it – in a way that makes young parents feel unwelcome. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, I'm very sensitive to Jerry's thing that it's very difficult if you have, uh, you know, especially if it's loud and distracting and how you deal with that in a gentle way. You have to be gentle. But I would encourage, you know, when that happens for parents to, if there is a cry room, to take the children there or if there is a, an area, uh, like I mentioned, where there's a gathering space or what, mm-hmm. or whatever. And also to be patient with young parents who are struggling to try to get their children to behave at mass. Yeah. That can be a real challenge for young parents. So I think we need to be patient. So, you know, in some ways, it's just kind of everyone tr- giving a little bit, I think, to try to uh, be sensitive to those around them, being sensitive to young parents, but also young parents being sensitive to others, especially sure. if their children are loud and becoming a a major distraction. So I'm sorry it's not a black and white answer. I think we have to look at particular situations. And would you encourage parents to still bring their children or would you maybe encourage them to tag team and and leave the kids at home if if they're able to? Would you think is a better I I, I don't know. I leave it up to the parents' discretion on that. I know parents who do both. Mm -hmm. And I think they have to come to that decision. There are also places where they have babysitting and that for real young children yeah. at, at the parish. That is another option. But I respect the parents' decision on that. If they really feel it's important to come together as a family, I wouldn't want to discourage that. Mm-hmm. If they find that it's too difficult even for them, some parents will say, well, I can't focus on mass when I have. So they, they tag team, like you said. One yeah. goes to one mass, the other goes to another. As a matter of fact, I was with a family the other day, and they were telling me that's what they do. <laughs> so I think it's up to the family. Okay. Yeah. All right. Patrick Wheeler from St. John the Evangelist in Goshen asked, why are the books of the Old Testament in a different order in Latin American Spanish than in English translations? Wow, that's a good question, Patrick. You know, I have two Spanish Bibles, and one of them, the Latin American Spanish translation, is the same order as our English translation. But the other Spanish Bible I have they're not in the same order. I had never and heard I of this. I don't really know why. Um, <laughs> you know, other than I know there was some, you know, as far as the order of the books in the Bible, I mean, that was something that developed in the beginning. There wasn't any specific order. It, and I don't know the history of it too well. But, but I do know that in the original Hebrew Bible, there were different versions of the Old Testament then used by by different Christian churches and denominations. There was a particular arrangement or order of the books that was different than how it, th- those books were put in order in Christian Bibles. So I'm not sure if that one Spanish Bible is, might be following the order of the old Hebrew Bible. Oh, okay. Perhaps, but I haven't really looked into that. I, I think the Bible, for example, the one that doesn't follow the order that we have, the one Spanish Bible I have, like for example, when I noticed it, it's the book of Psalms was the last book in the Old Testament. Huh. And I thought, oh, that's strange. But why that is, I'm just speculating. Maybe they're following the old Hebrew Bible order. Maybe. Okay. But it's the same canon. That's the important thing. In other words, they're the same books, even uh-huh. if they're not in the same order. All right. 
Cody Schmucker from Sacred Heart in Warsaw submitted the following. I plan on getting married late next year, and my fiancé is an agnostic, but very open and accepting of the Catholic faith. What would it take for us to get married in this diocese? Thank you. Interesting, and this would be in any diocese, actually. Um, It depends on whether or not the person was baptized. If the person was never baptized, you need what's called a dispensation from disparity of cult in order to have a valid marriage. So even though the caller mentions that their fiancé is an agnostic, we would need to know whether that person was ever baptized. Okay. Let's say the person was baptized and is now an agnostic. They would then be a necessity not for a dispensation, but for permission for a mixed marriage. Permission for a mixed marriage. That permission is very readily granted, and the Catholic is asked to reaffirm it, they intend to continue to practice their faith and to do all in his or her power to raise the children in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. So that is really important. So I think in marrying an agnostic, one needs to be very careful that one is able to fulfill those responsibilities. If the agnostic spouse is not open to raising the children Catholic or is somehow against the other spouse practicing their faith, that could be a a recipe for disaster. You don't want faith to become a stumbling block in, in the success of the marriage, you know? So I hope I answered that clearly. And they could probably talk with their parish priest. Definitely, definitely. And help them. All right. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we've got more of your questions, including questions on advice for those affected by suicide, Our Lady of Guadalupe appearing pregnant, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. If you're enjoying Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, be sure to check out Redeemer Radio's other locally produced programs, including The Kyle Hyman Show, Dr. Doctor, and Church Life Today. To listen to previous episodes of any of these, go to RedeemerRadio.com and select Audio Library, or download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and listen there. You can also submit questions for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future episode of Truth and Charity on the app or website. Or if you have a question for Dr. Doctor, a show featuring three physicians from the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese, you can submit it there too. So don't forget the Redeemer Radio app and website for past episodes of all our locally produced shows. Thanks for listening to and supporting Redeemer Radio as we continue our mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman asking questions that you've submitted for him to answer. And our next question comes from somebody who mentioned, it seems there is an uptick in suicides, especially with celebrities. What advice or guidance can you offer for those affected by the suicide of friends or family? Yeah, someone was telling me the other day about the increase in the numbers of suicides, Mm -hmm. the suicide rate in our country. I I wasn't even aware about the recent last year or two. But... um, it's so sad, so difficult oftentimes for family and friends. There's 
a lot of questioning sometimes well why there's a lot of hurt there can even be some guilt sometimes people will blame themselves well why didn't i see this coming or could i help have helped the, this loved one more all mm-hmm. those kinds of things so i think one of the important things is um, first of all to pray for the deceased loved one who committed suicide to entrust them into the loving and merciful arms of the lord as we know though objectively speaking suicide is a is a, a grave sin we know that the culpability is often diminished because of mental health reasons, mm-hmm. et cetera, severe depression, whatever it might be. Uh, so praying for the person, having masses offered for the person, I would recommend that. Mm-hmm. But for the family or friends that remain, I, I think sometimes it's important to have some place to, to someone to talk to mm-hmm. about one's feelings, uh, maybe another close friend, maybe a priest. Uh, some parishes have bereavement groups. Sometimes counseling can be helpful sure. for that grief that one has experienced. There's probably uh, counselors who especially are, can help with grief over suicide. Mm-hmm. If one is really suffering interiorly, one should get help. Spiritually, one can receive a lot of consolation through prayer. But I, I'd say also rely on good friends. You know, Seek counseling. It, it might be helpful. All right. Another listener asked, how do we know that Our Lady of Guadalupe is pregnant? I can't tell by looking at the image. Did she say that she was expecting? No, uh, I don't think she said she was expecting. But from what I recall, if you look at an image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, there is this uh, black belt at her waist or a black ribbon around Mm -hmm. her waist. And that was a symbol among the Aztecs that she is expecting a child that that because that's an aztec maternity belt Hmm. um the only thing is i've only seen that uh written about by certain scholars about of the image and others don't so i don't know if that's certain certainty i'd have to read more about it but that's what i've heard okay and our last question is did you have any favorite television cartoons as a kid Oh my goodness! This makes me have to really test my memory. <laughs> You're not uh, not still watching them today. <laughs> I should. I, <laughs> I okay. I I mean, there were a lot. I mean, Saturday morning cartoons. That was a thing. I don't know if that's a tradition where kids. I mean, that was the morning where we would watch cartoons. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Is that still the case? Well, I, I feel like kids now can watch cartoons anytime they want. You yeah. Know, you just watch them online and things. Yeah. So. Well, we only had three channels right, back right. then. <laughs> it was a little you know, so. <laughs> you had to obey the schedule of the, the networks. I really like Popeye. Yeah? I remember that. Uh-huh. Yeah. I never. Did it know, make you eat more spinach? No, they, my mom tried, but I still uh, <laughs> resisted. I remember Rocky and Bullwinkle. That was a lot of fun. I remember uh-huh. Yogi Bear, Flintstones, Jetsons. Bugs Bunny, Huckleberry yeah. Hound. Those were all things I watched. I, I, I love the cartoons, yeah. I wonder how well they hold up today. If you'd I, I, you know what? Sometimes <laughs> I should look at those again and see, you know. <laughs> Do kids, are they even rerun today? Do you know? Oh, I, I think so. I think you can find some of the old ones here and there, yeah. Yeah, maybe as Bishop, I should spend some time watching cartoons again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Bring your kids. Which one would you be? Tell your kids. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Movie night with with Bishop Rose watching the old cartoons. What would be your favorite? I think Popeye. Popeye. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I think, yeah. Although, Rocky and Bullwinkle, I try to remember. It might bring back some memories. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, next week, we are going to be having a a special episode. It's actually our our one-year anniversary of doing Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. So, thought, if you're up for it, Bishop, we could bring in some special guests. And uh, I don't know. I always think it's better if it's you talking to somebody else instead of me. So, bring in in some special guests. Have a little special episode, one-year anniversary of Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Are you up for it? I am. Are you going to do you know who they are? Or you want to keep that a secret well, from the listeners? Maybe, maybe we'll keep or a little surprise. bit of surprise. I've been talking with some, uh, some people from Redeemer Radio, some of our staff and some of our board members about bringing in some of their kids and we can have a, oh, some, of the, some okay. of the kids here of different ages. Yeah, that'll be fun. All right. Who's bringing the food? Uh, maybe we'll, we'll all pitch in a little bit. Olives? Maybe they could each bring a, a favorite treat or snack. <laughs> okay, very good. To share. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. Thank you, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 